Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Today, we waste no time as we open the radio vault for a unique conversation from the past on the Book of Romans with Noah Hutchings and David Ingram. I'd like to begin our study today in chapter 9 of Romans by reading the first five verses. So if you're in your car, please don't take your eyes off the road. Just listen to what we're saying from the scriptures. And then if you're at home and you have opportunity, we hope you will turn to that chapter of scripture. Beginning in verse 1, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom is concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Reverend Hutchings, break the bread of life for us, discussing these marvelous truths with us today. The Book of Romans is one of the most important documents, I think, to ever come from the pen of man. Of course, it was breathed by the Holy Ghost, and Paul wrote as he was led to write as the Holy Spirit directed his pen. But nevertheless, throughout, we see Paul the lawyer writing to the Jew, to the church, and to the Gentile. Now, chapter 9 of Romans concerns God's past relationships with Israel. Chapter 10 concerned God's present relationship with Israel. And chapter 11 refers to God's future relationship with Israel. And you know, so many people, so many Christians are confused about God's past relationship with Israel. How is God dealing with Israel today and how he's going to deal with them in the future? And in our discussion of these three chapters, we're going to cover these subjects, and I think those who are listening are going to be blessed. Now, as you have read about God's past dealings with Israel, God has established in the past a special relationship with Israel. And in these verses, David, that you read, we read of eight things that God has agreed to with Israel, or how he has blessed Israel, or how he has chose Israel. Now, the first one that we read here is national adoption. You said here, as the scriptures report, who are the Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenant. So, God has adopted Israel, a national adoption. And this is the only nation that has ever been adopted by God. We read in Exodus 4.22, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. So Israel, the nation of Israel, is an adopted nation. God has adopted that nation. And I don't care how rebellious they have become. Like the prodigal son, he is always there to lift them up. Sure, he spanked them many, many times and even dispersed them from the land. But there is a special relationship between Israel and God, and we're going to find out in these studies how God continues to deal with Israel and has dealt with Israel in the past as an adopted son. Read in Deuteronomy, the seventh chapter, about this special adopted status between God and Israel. 
Now, the second thing that we note here in those scriptures that you read is God showed his glory to Israel. He gave Israel his glory. His glory covered them. And there is no other nation in the world that the glory of God has covered like the glory of God has covered Israel in the past. Now we read in Second Chronicles, the fifth chapter, verse 14. The priests could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. And we know the Shekinah glory overshadowed the children of Israel in the wilderness to protect them. And it stood in the doorway of the tabernacle. This was the glory of God. So God has blessed Israel in this way. He has protected them with his glory. And no other nation can claim this. Now we read also that God gave Israel the law, or Israel was made custodian of God's law. And it was a great responsibility and a mighty trust from God for Israel to be made the keeper and administrator of God's law. No other nation has been so favored. Of course, Moses went up on Mount Sinai, and God gave them the law, and they have been custodians of the law. And you can still go to Israel today and go into the synagogues, and there is the law. They still want to keep the law. There is something inherent in this people that they need to keep the law, the law of Moses. And we read also the fourth thing that God has made a relationship with Israel is in the covenants. Of course, there are so many covenants that God made with Israel the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant with Jacob, the covenant with David. It's impossible to discuss all the covenants that God made with Israel in this brief series of messages. But we know that God has an everlasting covenant with Israel. We read in Isaiah, the last chapter of Isaiah, chapter 66, verses 20 and 22. And they shall bring all your brethren for an offering unto the Lord, out of all the nations upon horses. Now, this is the regathering of Israel in the last days, getting ready for the kingdom age, and in chariots, and in litters, and upon mules, and upon swift beasts, to my holy mountain Israel, saith the Lord, as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel unto the house of the Lord, and I will also take of them for priests and for Levites, saith the Lord, for as the new heavens and the new earth will I make shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. So the promise to Israel is that there will always be an Israel. Sure, they have been in a breach during the time of the diaspora, but God says here he's going to bring them back, even on swift beats, upon mules, upon chariots, on airplanes on ships, <laughs> wherever he can bring them back. And there will always be an Israel that will, as long as there is a nation on this earth, there will be an Israel. And this is God's covenant with them. I don't care what the amillennialists say. I don't care what those who say the church has inherited all the promises made to Israel. That simply is not so if you believe God's word. Well, you do have to take it literally, and this is where the shoe binds, isn't it, Reverend Hutchings, that if you take a literal view of Scripture, you have to come out with a premillennial position on these kinds of things. There's just no other answer to it. On the other hand, if you spiritualize some things away, and by the way, amillennialists will admit and agree 
that when it comes to prophetic themes, that's something they normally do, and they, they take credit for it without any shame or apology in their case, but we're looking at a literal Word of God, and I think it's important for our people to realize that you can take the Word of God literally. You don't have to spiritualize something away to try to explain it away. Certainly, and we can look to Israel today and see this coming into literal focus. Now, the fifth thing that God has made in dealing with Israel is services of God. In the scripture we just read, that he's going to call again the Levites and the priests, the Cohens, and they will serve in the millennium. Sure, they've been cut off for the past 2,000 years, but God says he's going to bring them back. And in the past, God instituted the Levites and the priests to serve him in the temple and be a witness unto all nations. And we know that during the tribulation period, there will be 144,000 Israelites, servants of God, to go in all the world. So Israel, as servants of God, they are still in that position, even though there is only a remnant coming back today. Now, the next thing that Paul said, that God had a special relationship with Israel in, he made them promises. You know, the only promises that America has is that if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and seek my face, then will I hear from heaven and heal their land. That is the promise that we have. But God has special promises to Israel. They are called the children of promise. We read in Galatians, the third chapter, verses 7 through 9. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. So God has made promises to Israel. He has promised them a city. He has promised them a temple. He has promised them that their name would be forever as a nation in this world and that the Messiah would come through them, and the Messiah would come and reign upon the throne of David. And in Israel would all nations be blessed. Certainly, they have not attained to that position today, but we see prophecy being fulfilled today so that this will become a reality in the future. Brother David, we know that the church has said there are certain segments of the church has inherited all the promises of Israel. Do you have anything to say about that? Well, let me just comment. You are in chapter 3 of Galatians, and if you read just a little bit further, I think we can dispel that kind of thing completely because, you see, when God gave his promises to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant, he promised Abraham a land, a seed, and a blessing. And let's just look here at verse 14, and I'll start at verse 13 of chapter 3 of Galatians. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, I can develop that a lot, but the point that Paul is making here is that it wasn't the land that was promised to the Gentiles. It wasn't the seed that was promised to the Gentiles. It was right here in verse 14, the blessing of Abraham that was to come upon the Gentiles. And there's no way that you can read that the church has replaced Israel when you look at that particular thing, because the church is not 
Jewish as such, it's Gentile. And this blessing to the Gentiles was promised through Abraham, and it came upon the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what this verse is saying. All you Christians out there, if you go to church and your pastor says that the church has inherited all the promises to Israel, I think you have a bone to pick with your pastor. Well, and I certainly do. This is probably the key to understanding eschatology or the fulfillment of prophecy as we teach it at Southwest Radio Church. And as premillennialists and as dispensationalists teach it worldwide. So the key to understanding this is that the church has not replaced Israel in the total scene of God. That God has two programs, one for the church, one for Israel, and yet he has one plan for human history. And I think we have to understand that and accept it because that's what the Bible literally teaches. Amen. Uh, Brother David, here in verse 5 of chapter 9, we read, that God has a special relationship with Israel through the fathers of Israel. From Israel came the great heroes of faith whom God called. And we think of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Samuel, Moses, and David. And we can understand what a void there would be in the revelation of God to man without these great men of God. And we have to understand also that the Bible, this book that we're reading from today, was written by 40 writers. All of them were Jews. I know some think that Luke may have been a Gentile, but I think he was probably a Grecian Jew. The Word of God came to us through the fathers of Israel, and they were for our examples, and God used them to fulfill His plan and purpose. This has not happened with any other nation. And also, the eighth thing that we read here in verse 5, that God has a special relationship with Israel is in the coming of a Messiah. Concerning the flesh, Christ came who is over all, God blessed forever. So out of Israel came the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, your Savior and my Savior. We read in Matthew, the first chapter, verse 1, the book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In Romans, the first chapter, verse 3, we read, Concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. In Hebrews, the second chapter, verse 16, we read, He took not on himself the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Amen. So out of Israel came the Messiah, and this is the eighth and concluding relationship discussed here by Paul with Israel. So the relationship in the past between God and Israel is a special relationship that God has ever had with any other nation. Well, all right, Reverend Hutchings, as we begin to look at some of the verses that follow here, I'd like to point out that it's very interesting to me that one man can have two sons, and one of those sons is a Jew, and the other one is a Gentile. And we see this a couple of times. We're going to talk here about Abraham with his two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Of course, so one was a Jew and one was a Gentile. Now, what was the difference? We see in Jacob and Esau, one was a Jew and one was a Gentile. And these demarcations were declared by election before the children were even born or conceived. And let's look now then at verses 6 through 9 of Romans chapter 9. 
not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. For they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. Tell us about that, Reverend Hutchings. The thought presented here by Paul in verse 6 is that some may conclude that because Israel has turned from the Messiah, all of God's favors and blessings upon the nation were a total worth. But Paul continues to point out that this is not the case at all. The name Israel means a prince with God. Only those who believe God and serve from the heart attain to the status of prince, priest, or king with God. Now, God had a covenant with Abraham that Sarah would have a son. And through Sarah, Abraham's legal wife, that the promise would continue. If Sarah had not had a son, then the promise would have died with Abraham. But we know that when Abraham was 100 years old, and Sarah was 90 years old, they had a son. It was a miracle. So the promise continued through Isaac. And so regardless of circumstances, the promise continues, and God's plan and purpose for Israel would be fulfilled through Isaac. The promise, the seed of Abraham, the seed of the covenant, that in Abraham would all nations be blessed, was passed on to Abraham's son, Isaac. As you speak, it reminds me that the nation Israel is elect according to the calling of God. In fact, that God in his sovereignty has called out that nation among all of the nations of the earth. And he has called them, of course, to an earthly inheritance. God also is calling out a people for his name out of the nations for a heavenly calling, a heavenly citizenship. And that invitation, of course, applies to whosoever will. Get the complete conversation between Noah Hutchings and David Ingram when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. The book, Romance of Romans, by Noah Hutchings, encompasses everything Noah and David were just discussing. This book is back in print for the first time in many years. Over 450 pages examining closely questions like, Is man inherently evil? Is man born with a nature to sin? Why would a just God sentence man to eternal death for something over which they have no control? This book, Romance of Romans, is an excellent resource for your personal Bible study time and for your Sunday school or small group. Order Romance of Romans by Noah Hutchings when you call 1-800-652-1144 or order online swrc.com. Citizens from one of the most liberal cities in America recently recalled three of their school board members rejecting their anti-parent agenda. Marvin McIlvaney has all the details in today's Bible in the News report. In the good old days, parents used to teach their children something called manners. Manners are the proper or the polite way to behave in public. If you take the chewing gum out of your mouth and stick it behind your ear before you eat a meal, you might need to work on your manners. You can also call manners etiquette. It shows good manners 
when you hold the doors open for other people. You say please and thank you, and you refrain from burping in public. If you violated any of these rules of civilized society, your parents would say, Where are your manners? When is the last time you heard the word manners? It's been a while, I'm sure. Do you think schools should teach manners? They kind of do already. For example, at least when I was in school, you had to raise your hand to let the teacher know you wished to talk. Then the teacher would say, Yes, Marvin, what is it? And then I would know I could speak. Imagine a room full of children all talking out at once. What are they teaching in school? How about critical race theory, or also known as CRT? CRT is a way of thinking about America's history through the lens of racism. It centers on the idea that racism is systemic in the nation's institutions, that is to say that it's built into our systems, and that they are there to maintain the dominance of white people in society. Is that even true? Isn't American history full of mistakes? I mean, slavery used to be legal, but now it's not. Does that mean we have to be ashamed of it forever? I've made plenty of mistakes in my own life, but I don't dwell on them. Can't history just be history? Shouldn't we learn from history so we don't repeat past mistakes? One newly elected governor thought teaching CRT in schools was actually teaching racism. It was literally the first thing Virginia's Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin, did when he took office. It was executive order number one. He signed the order which was designed to root out critical race theory from the state's education system. He ordered the Department of Education to conduct a review and even started a hotline so angry and resentful parents could provide tips and examples of it in the classroom. In an interview with the Associated Press, Youngkin said he wanted the executive order to accomplish two things. Quote, get divisive concepts out of our schools while also ensuring that we should teach all of our history, the good and the bad. You might be thinking, well, gee, this is a Virginia problem. It really doesn't concern me. My kids go to a great school. School board meetings in many states have become the center of arguments and sometimes violent altercations over everything, from COVID-19 protocols and wearing masks, to how classrooms address race, equity, social justice, and sexual equality. The unruly and violent conduct at many school board meetings, plus death threats directed toward elected members, has risen to a form of domestic terrorism and hate crimes. The national group representing school boards said in a letter to President Joe Biden's administration. The National School Boards Association requested an investigation by the U.S. Department of Justice, Education, and Homeland Security and assistance from the FBI to maintain safety for school board members, as well as district staff and students. Quote, We urge the federal government's intervention against individuals or hate groups who are targeting our schools and educators, the letter said. Along with attacks related to requiring masks against COVID-19, quote, many public school officials are also facing physical threats because of propaganda purporting the false inclusion of critical race theory within classroom instruction and curricula. As these acts of malice, violence, and threats against public school officials have increased, the classification of these heinous actions could be the equivalent 
to a form of domestic terrorism and hate crimes, the letter said. Due mainly to mask mandates, the once sleepy school board discussions of budgets and facility management have become noisy events that draw hundreds of angry parents. From Washington State to Georgia, strong feelings about COVID-19 policies have driven most of the debate, but in some places, disagreements over school policies on race, history, and equality have been just as intense. In one instance, demonstrators surrounded a school board member's car, preventing him from driving away. After one Illinois school board meeting, police arrested an Illinois man for disorderly conduct and aggravated battery. The National School Boards Association asked the Biden administration for help with threats, and U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland fired off a Justice Department memo to focus on the issue. Florida Republican Senator Rick Scott was quick to respond, quote, Joe Biden's attorney general wants the FBI to go after parents for speaking out at school board meetings to protect kids from radical curriculum like critical race theory, Scott tweeted. Three San Francisco school board members were removed from their positions by voters following a tough recall campaign that pitted Democrats against Democrats as controversies over school closings and the renaming of schools fueled a well-funded backlash. The successful effort in one of the country's most liberal cities is likely to embolden Republicans who have channeled parental anger over school reopenings and mask mandates into a powerful wedge issue. For Democrats, especially those making decisions in blue states, the vote highlighted internal divisions over how to handle the pandemic as cases decline. More than 70% of voters supported the recall of school board president Gabriela Lopez, Vice President Fauga Malinga, and Commissioner Allison Collins, according to the San Francisco Department of Elections. Their temporary replacements will be named by Mayor London Breed, a Democrat who, in announcing her support for the recall last year, said the city was at a crossroads and called the board's priorities severely misplaced. The seeds of anger were planted early in the coronavirus pandemic when the board considered changing the names of as many as 44 public schools in a city that was still trying to figure out how to safely reopen them. Some of the school names that once appeared on the chopping block included Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. So, Lincoln, who signed the Emancipation Proclamation and freed the slaves, was a racist? George Washington, the father of our country, was a racist? This is what they teach in critical race theory. Bowing to pressure, the board voted unanimously to suspend its plans. The school names all remain in place. The successful recall campaign was applauded by conservatives around the country. Republicans like New Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis have sought to translate frustration over COVID-era mandates into political clout. On top of that, add critical race theory to it, and you can see why some parents have said, enough is enough. No one watches Fox News in San Francisco. There's no real right-wing influence there. The leaders of the recall were non-white immigrants. The fact that an overwhelming majority of Democrats recalled San Francisco's ultra-woke school board speaks volumes. In other words, they tried to sell critical race theory to people in San Francisco 
and even they didn't buy it. Tomorrow, Mac Dominic will be here to look at the sons of God and the Nephilim. Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station or by subscribing to our daily podcast. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries. It is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.